Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Would you keep standing while we pray? Father God, we know that a battle rages. For those of us who are blind to the battle, who we feel like everything is going well, I pray that you would open up our minds to what is actually going on, the spiritual reality in which we live. For those of us who feel like they are in the midst of the front line, that they are being beaten down at every step, they fall fat on their face, I pray that you would be their shelter, that you would be their shield, that you would be their strength, that they would find hope where there seems to be hopelessness and that they would not despair, but glory in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Nathan Webster. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to serve on the pastoral team. Um, Pastor Timon asked me to bring this message as we continue our sermon series on the war um, and to share some of my insights from my own personal experience in that. So I trust that you will uh, be blessed by what we speak about today and that you will be challenged and that you let the word dwell richly in your heart as we turn to that. Uh, In 1943, uh, British High Command in World War II had identified two strategic targets that could possibly turn the tide of the war. Uh, They were in the Ruhr Valley uh, in Germany. And the Ruhr Valley is a place where significant water was stored. Huge dams were there. And these dams were used to power hydroelectricity. They were used in the uh, steelworks, There were mines in the Ruhr Valley, significant mines to take steel out of the earth that were used in the construction of aircraft, of ammunition, and they knew that if they could destroy the dams, then energy would stop, production of ore would stop, the factories would stop, and it would potentially turn the tide of the war. So Chief Engineer Wallace, Barnes Wallace, was approached to take on the task and he worked out that the dams were so strong, to destroy the dams, it would take a 22,000-pound bomb, a 10-ton bomb, bigger than ever had been created before, dropped at 40,000 feet. Now, the problem is there was no bombs that big and there were no planes capable of flying that payload and and thirdly, they, they couldn't fly that high. So it looked like a significant problem. But he was charged with, how do we destroy the dams? And he came up with an idea. And the idea was to create a large cylindrical-shaped bomb, similar to a massive 44-gallon drum. And rather than going high and dropping it on the strongest point of the dam, they were to target the weak spot of the dam, which was under the water at the base of the dam. And so they came up with a new bomb, a circular bomb, which they called Upkeep was the name of the bomb. And in May 1943, the raids began. They picked the best pilots, the best crews, because rather than flying at a safe height, the geometry worked out that they had to drop the bomb from 20 metres above water at a speed of 430 kilometres an hour. They needed the cover of night to do this because they were guarded, so they'd be flying blind in night at 400 kilometres an hour, not much higher than the ceiling above the water. Now, lots of the planes didn't even get to the dams. Some of them hit waves, because they're that low, they hit the waves and were taken out. Many people were killed in action in this plan. But 
Operation Chastise began. And that's the operation that got turned later into the 1955 film, The Dam Busters, which you may have watched. Um, the, the missions was a success. The Moor and the Eldersea uh, dams were breached and it caused catastrophic flooding in the valley. A wall 30 metres high flooded the valley, sadly taking out tens of thousands of people with it, many of whom were prisoners of war, destroying the power stations, destroying the mining industry, and actually creating a significant problem um, for the Nazi war machine for a period of time until they could rebuild. You see, the engineer knew, and so did British High Command, to be effective in war, you need to think outside the box. You need to be ingenious. You need to look for your enemy's weakness before you pounce so that you will be effective. And make no mistake, I want to say here today that we are in a battle. That we are in a battle and that Satan is our enemies. He is inventive, he's calculated, he's thoughtful, and he will look for our weak spot, which will be different for me than it is to you. He will look for our weak spot and he will pounce where the success is most likely. He's not going to attack us where we're strong. He's too smart for that. He's going to look for the cracks in our lives. And he's going to drop his bombs. He's going to turn those screws in the hope that the walls which protect our lives will come crumbling down and the foundations upon which we build our lives will be shaken to the point that we are casualties of this battle that he's fighting. The battle is not just this mysterious spiritual thing that sounds strange for new people who think, well, what are they doing? We believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. And so we preach all of Scripture. We're going through the book of Ephesians at the moment, and we're up to chapter 6, and we're looking at verses 11 or 10 to 12, uh, particularly verse 12 in this section. But the reality is the battle is going to come, not in this weird ethereal spiritual realm, the battle is going to hit our lives in places like our marriages, in our relationships, in our workplaces. It's going to attack us in our self-worth, in our self-talk that goes on in our minds. It's going to attack us in our health, in our prosperity potentially. We might have everything taken away like the prophet Job. It will come in our attack on our emotions and it will definitely come in an attack on our worship. What we worship most of all, Satan will be trying to usurp that place and have us turn our eyes from Jesus and to worship other things. But why study the devil? Why study the devil? It was famously said once, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. And that's wise. We look at Jesus a lot, but when we're confronted in Scripture with a passage like this, we need to do what it says. We need to look at the devil, but filter it through the lens of knowing who God is and that the victory is already won. So Sun Tzu, in his book, The Art of War, written 500 BC, tells us why we should study our enemy. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither your, the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Knowing our enemy will help us to defend, it will help us to stand, and it will help us to protect the position in which we are most vulnerable. Does that make sense? We're all going to have different vulnerabilities. 
So we need to know what they are and we need to protect ourselves from them. So know your enemy, it prepares you for battle. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10, we read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The devil is not a red cartoon character with little horns and a pitchfork. That is not the devil. We see here that the devil is actually evil. He is scheming against God. That he is powerful. He's not locked away in hell yet. He's actually free to roam on the earth with his cohort of of fallen angels, which are demons, and he's looking to drag people down with him, to blind them from the glory of the gospel. And he's described, it's described here as rulers, as authorities, as cosmic powers and spiritual forces. That sounds significant when I just compare it next to little old me. I'm up against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. That's huge. I don't know about you, but I've never been in a meeting with a ruler before. I have been in situations where I was significantly above my pay grade when I was working at the tax office as a project manager and having to go into, fly into Canberra and meet with significant people well above my pay grade and convince them that we need to progress on a project that may or may not, they may see as a benefit. Right? You better believe me, I came into that meeting well prepared. I came into that meeting knowing the details that they might ask so that I could give a defence to them so that I wouldn't be blindsided by some strange question that I had no idea of. I was prepared for, if you like, the battle of the workplace and doing well in my role. And that's the same sort of thing we're doing today. We need to be prepared. Knowing our enemy will help us stand. Know from this verse that we're not actually called to attack in battle. We're not called to attack. We're called to stand against the schemes of the devil, not to attack the devil. We have a command to put on to put on the armour of God, which comes with a promise that if we put on the armour of God, we will be able to stand. That's where we are today. I wanted to look at the reality of who Satan is, some of his attributes, before we look at some of the methods in which he'll use to attack. Satan accuses Christians before God. The word Satan actually means accuser. He's an accuser of the brethren. And just like it is with, was with the, the prophet Job, where we see, if you like, behind the veil of, of heaven, where Satan approached God and asked God to actually, if you like, sift Job, to take everything away of value for him, in the hope that Job would actually, as he says, that we would actually curse you to your face. Because he was saying to God, he doesn't actually worship God, he worships the benefits that you give him. Their faith isn't real. That's what he does to us. Satan will attack us in the same way that he attacked Job. But thankfully, in Hebrews chapter 7, we read that we have Jesus who always lives to make intercession for us. Intercession for us. He is standing in the gap, if you like, and he is interceding for us. Satan is also a murderer. Jesus said to those who are planning on killing him in John 8, 44, that you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. 
Jesus told the church at Smyrna to be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Satan comes to steal and destroy wherever he can and to make life eternally, if possible, miserable. But in John 10, we read the opposite of that is Christ. John 10.10, 10, that Christ came not to destroy, but came into the world that we may have life and have life abundantly. Satan is, if you like, the opposite of what God is. Satan is also described as being like a roaring lion or a prowling lion looking for those who he might devour. And the reality of that situation is if you've ever seen a doco, David Attenborough or something, you see a lion on the prairie and he's going after a herd of something, or she is, and it doesn't go for like the centre of the pack where the biggest, juiciest animals are. It goes for the stragglers. It goes for the edges, the corners. It goes for the young, for the old, the lame, the weak, because it knows that's the easiest target. And that's exactly what Satan will do. But notice he's described as like a prowling lion. He's not a real lion. There's only one lion, and that's the lion of Judah. He is posing as something that he is not. He does not have full authority here. He is on a leash, if you like, as Jeff said last week, and he is under God's control. So that's a little bit about the character of who Satan is. Now I want to look at knowing our weak spots, because the reality is that's where the battle is going to come. We need to know our weak spots so that we can prepare for the battle. The first thing is, is that Satan will attack with lies. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature. For he is a liar and a father of lies in John 8, 44. He's the father of lies. So he's like the author or the beginning of lies. He's the one who gave birth to lies. The first time that we see Satan appear in Genesis chapter 3, we see him come into the garden and deceive Adam and Eve. The very first words that came out of his mouth were a lie. Surely if you eat that fruit, you're not going to die. Really? Is that what God said? You know, like you get this idea that he's cunning. He's in the form of a serpent. He's, he's trying to distort the truth in a way that would be believable. John says that Satan has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. There's no truth in Satan. John Bloom, a writer, wrote recently on Christianity Today that the devil has no authority over any Christian except the authority that we grant him by believing him. He has no authority over a Christian except the authority that we grant him by believing him. He can't do anything unless we start to succumb to those lies. The greatest problem with some of the lies that Satan will feed us is that they sound pretty legitimate. If, if, if Satan confronts me with something that's completely obvious, my fishy meter is going to go off. That sounds a bit dodgy. That doesn't sound right. That's some theology that I can clearly see is wrong, or that doesn't make sense. But when it's 99% truth and 1% lie, it can be very hard to discern the truth. You better believe he's ingenious in his battle. Satan will attack by planting seeds of doubt in our minds. Ideas that will cause us to question the goodness of God, to question God's character. Cause us to, to wonder, is God really in control of my circumstances? Because look at what is going on. When the circumstances of life get hard, he will find your weakness and he will not stop. He will go after it. In our sickness, 
we'll be tempted to believe that God actually doesn't care, that he's not a good father. In our cancer, in our disability, when we are facing hardship, he will plant seeds of doubt into God's character that if we entertain those seeds, they may grow and will cause to doubt God who is good. When we hit hard times, maybe in our career or financially, does God really provide for all my needs? It doesn't look like it. When we're exhausted, we'll be tempted to think, waiting on the Lord and, and he will bring me rest, really? Well, why am I so exhausted? He doesn't really give you rest, does he? When our marriages start to struggle, Maybe we'll, we'll start to think, is this really the person that, that God has put in my life for me? Did I make a mistake? Is it possible that there's, there's someone else out there for me? When we sin, we'll be tempted to think, are we really God's children? Because surely if I was a genuine believer and surely if I was God's child, then I wouldn't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Satan will plant seeds of doubt that we cannot let grow. We need to recognize them and be ready for the battle. I wanted to share with you a little bit about how this has fleshed out in, in my life because it's going to be different for you than it is for me. And so I wanted to take some time to talk through how it can appear in someone's life. And for you, it, it may be completely different. Uh, over about nine months ago, I was diagnosed with a serious mental health issue, clinical depression uh, and anxiety to a point where my life pretty much had to stop. Uh, it was significant. Um, the reality is I'm here today for the first time preaching in nine months. Um, I've been at work for a long time, but I've been working behind the scenes because uh, social anxiety has become a thing for me, which never was in the past. I used to love being, doing this. I used to love walking to church. I was gripped with fear, feeling like I wanted to vomit when I walked into the church, not to preach, but just to see other people. With this anxiety... And I needed to do something about it. I'm not fully recovered. I'm on the road to recovery. God willing, there will be full recovery, but who knows? Maybe that's not God's plan for me. Maybe God's plan is that through my weakness, I will see him as my strength. I'm praying that I will see recovery. I want to be fixed. We all want to be fixed. But at the moment, I just want to share some of my story. So I've sought godly counsel. I've sought professional counsel. For about nine months now, after going to see a psychologist, I've been on medication, which has actually been an amazing blessing for me because it's actually helped with the, the, the problems that I'm having. But before I go in deeper, I want to actually say, firstly, and be clear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that mental health is caused by Satan. Please don't hear this. That's not what I'm saying. Mental health is a complex issue. I don't pretend to understand all of mental health. All I'm doing is, is explaining a very small part of what my experience has been. There's many factors involved in mental health. It can be circumstances, health, diet. It can be biology. It's definitely chemistry. We're physical beings. There's chemicals involved. And the reality is, is that we live in broken bodies that were affected by the fall. And just like if someone came to the doctor for a broken leg, or if they came to the doctor for uh, cancer, or they came to the doctor for leukemia, you get those things fixed. And mental health is a biolog biological issue that we need help for often. And so I want to open up the door and be vulnerable in front of you. Is this a safe place today? It's also on the internet, so watching on the internet, is this a safe place today? I don't know, but I want you to hear my story. I want you to seek help if this is affecting you. 
I don't want someone watching at home thinking they have to do it on their own because they don't. I've put resources up on the screen. Um, Call an ambulance if you feel unsafe. Speak to Lifeline in Australia. There's probably other things internationally. Call Beyond Blue or another psychological helpline where they can start to work through it with you. Speak to a trusted friend because opening up and speaking to someone is the first part of the journey towards healing. Does that make sense? It does. Great. So let's be honest with one another. I want to say don't go home today if this issue is affecting you and you haven't been honest with people because you never know how fast a switch will turn in your mind. You'll never know how fast you go from being okay to being not okay. And I want to tell you today, if you approach one of our pastors or carers, it's okay that you're not okay. We will help you through. We will help you to find the truth of the gospel. We will help you to point you to the right professionals who can help for you. Seek help is what I'm saying. Don't be too proud to say we're not okay because we're all dealing with our own things, aren't we? We're all just a big hot mess, to be honest, just in a different way to each other, right? And we're all saved under the grace of God. And so I want to encourage you today. It started with me just battling over something I couldn't put my finger on. I just felt uneasy about something. And I was like, I don't know what this is. I just, is there some sin in my life? Is there some discontentment? What is it? I'm in, I'm in my dream job. I'm doing this stuff. I, I can't work it out. But just slowly over months and actually years, we've looked back into my history, probably over 15 years of marriage, Amy sees signs there, um, things have just slowly become dark. The joy has slowly been sucked out of me. And I was suffering physical symptoms. For those who don't empathise with mental health, it's not just confined to your brain. Your brain controls everything in your body. And so I was suffering physical symptoms. I was constantly stressed. I'm a reasonably high-capacity person, but I was stressed when I was doing nothing of high capacity, just in everything. I couldn't handle noise. My ears were always ringing. Go to bed at night and it's quiet, and I would just get this incessant ringing. I was crazy tired, so tired. I felt like something was strangling my heart. I can't even quite explain what that is, but like this pressure in my chest that just would not let up. And I felt like the life was being sucked out of me. And I'd been going on for about six months before I realised I needed help, and I couldn't do it by myself. The worst parts of it were fighting against the thoughts that were going on in my mind. But I want to just start out by saying the reality is that eight people every day in Australia end their life commit suicide because of mental health issues. Eight people every day, over three million Australians currently, have a population of 25 million adults, um, of 25 million total, uh, actually suffer from mental health conditions, anxiety. So three million. So that means on mass, we're probably talking about 45 people here today, 40 people suffering from mental health. So I'm speaking to an audience that probably many of you are suffering that today, and I want to speak with empathy. Not from someone who's arrived, but from someone, a brother, who is putting one foot in front of another, just like you, asking to be fixed, hoping to be fixed, and trying to get control of my life. The reality is there was nothing in my life that was bad. So circumstances weren't the thing for me. I had a family that loved me. I had amazing friends and support network. Um, I had a roof over my head. I could pay the bills. I was doing a job that I loved. I get paid to preach the gospel and to disciple people and encourage people in the word. Everything was coming up Webster in the scheme of humanity. But still the darkness was closing in and there was no hope. There was no logic to it. I couldn't work it out. I'm a strategic person and it made no sense. The thoughts that I had to battle with were relentless. Maybe, Maybe I just don't have enough faith 
because I've prayed about this over and over again and it's not going away. That's what I was thinking. Maybe, maybe I'm not genuinely a Christian, okay? Because if I was a Christian, then I wouldn't be entertaining these sorts of thoughts that was going through my mind. And then maybe I just need to run and leave it all behind. Maybe I need to quit my job as a pastor. I can't do that anymore while I'm suffering from this which means I'll have to leave the church and all these other problems. I was thinking through my mind and I was coming up with plans of how to do that. Maybe I need to just leave my family because I'm dragging them down and I'm a burden on them and I just need to leave. They'll be better off without me. Maybe it's all just too hard and stuff it. I just need to end my life. I need to commit suicide. And that's where I was. It was bad. My thoughts were dark. They were exhausting. They were dangerous. I knew the truth of the gospel. I knew theology. I knew what I'd say to someone if they approached me and said these same things to me. I knew the help that I would find them. But the reality is, I was being blinded by my illness and Satan was using that opportunity to filter lies into my mind that were starting to take root, that were starting to control me. He was attacking me in my weakest points. I'd been to the doctor a couple of times and I'd been seeing a Christian psychologist. They recommended a, the doctor was a Christian, he recommended a Christian one because I was a pastor. They might have more empathy with my situation. Um, they may have been a rubbish psychologist, but he said, no, they're not. Don't just go see a Christian one, go see a good one, right? That's the reality. This one happened to be a Christian, so I went with that. Um, but the reality is, two weeks later, after having my second session, I had to leave work. I was feeling overwhelmed. I went to the local Vietnamese restaurant, had my favourite dish, and I found myself sitting in the corner, eating my pho, crying, because I'd worked out a plan of how to commit suicide. And I'd worked it out. I knew. I just had to go home, and this was the plan. And the only thing that stopped me was I didn't want Amy to walk in and find me. I didn't want the girls to see me dead and have to live the life wondering why dad had killed himself. I didn't want to put that onto my family. And that's real. I had someone approach me after the service in the 9am and said, that's what their husband did. And it was hard to open that wound for her. But she said, thank you about speaking honestly about the tragedy of mental health. Because for her, that was her reality. I freaked out when that happened. Praise the Lord. I think that I don't want Amy to find me. In the, that was actually from God. He was putting up a warning sign in front of me, a big flashing light to say, go get help now. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to go home because that's what my plan was. And I thought maybe I just got to go to my work and shut the blind and sit there because it's a safe environment. I didn't want to speak to anyone because I thought, what will they think? I'm a pastor here. I can't, I can't speak to Pastor Timon or Pastor Jeff. Like that, that's too weird. We work with one another. And so I rang my doctor that had been treating me and he had an opening within an hour. And so I drove from the restaurant to the doctor and that's when we started medication and that's okay because we realised the options we were doing were not working and we need to take control of the situation before the situation destroyed me and it hasn't been easy but it has been a blessing it has been a blessing two weeks after I took a leave of absence for work I was away for six weeks on sick leave and then I had an additional three weeks holidays after that when I started to get a little bit better um, I found myself reading an article that came up on Facebook, which broke my heart. A lead pastor in a large church in California, Andrew Stockland, who had openly discussed his battle with depression, 
in a sermon two weeks before on Elijah and how he had just killed the prophets of Baal and then he wanted to end his life, committed suicide. He was survived by his young wife, she's 29, and their three beautiful children. And my heart breaks for that family. It breaks for that family. But it was also a slap in the face because I was like, this could have been me. This was going to be me. And that's when I started getting serious about it and saying, I don't know what I've got to do, but we've got to fix it. The battle is real. The illness is real. It's not just in my mind. But Satan was constantly attacking my weakest spot and my most vulnerable. And because of my illness, I was struggling to discern truth from lies. And it was really confusing me. I want to publicly thank my support network over the last a long time. My wife has been amazing. She's been dragging a boat anchor around for at least a year, holding up the family and suffering in silence because she felt she couldn't talk about her husband pastor's mental health issue. There's still stigma around it. And I just want to be vulnerable on stage and open it up and say it's okay to not be okay. Seek the help that you need if you're going through this or anything else. We're a place where we can provide support for you. My family, people like Pastor Jeff, who brought meals, didn't ask questions. People like Pastor Graham, who played golf with me and, and um, squash. When I could have stayed in bed, that felt better, but I knew that getting out of bed was a better way to go. And it's been a battle. It's been a battle. But I took great comfort in some things. One of the things I took great comfort in, because I know, that, I know Scripture reasonably well, um, wasn't the verses that say just pray more and it's going to be okay, that everything works out okay if we just have faith in God, because I couldn't see it working out okay. Can I just get this off for a sec? I read the book of 2 Corinthians probably about 10 times. I know it really well. It starts out with, I want to write to you to encourage you Basically, saying he wants to comfort you with the comfort that he has been comforted with in order that you may be able to comfort others. It's a lot about comfort. So I wonder what's going on in that. I knew chapter one was about that. And he even says that we despaired of even life itself, fearing that we have been given the sentence of death. So the Apostle Paul's saying, I had no hope for life. I was just going to die. I don't even know what's going on there. So I read it with a new lens over and over again. And there's so many good nuggets in that. Get in it. And you know what I was encouraged by? I was encouraged by no happy ending. I was encouraged by no clean answer. This is what I was encouraged by in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 to 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, not in strength, not in healing. Paul's response, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's no happy ending in this for the Apostle Paul, but what he found was his happy ending in Christ. He found that he was part of a bigger battle that was going on. It wasn't just about his personal situation. 
And I managed to have peace in the midst of a situation where it made no sense to have peace because I had no healing. My situation was exactly the same, but my perspective changed. And I will no longer be defined by my illness. I don't say I am depressed or I am an anxious person. That's my identity. I'm not depressed. I'm a child of God. I'm adopted by the Father. That's who I am. I just happen to be suffering from depression. Do you see how it changes everything? A perspective changes everything. I want to ask you, what type of lies are you prone to believing? They're all different for all of us. We are all targeted with lies. If we're aware of it, it will prepare us from battle. What Satan intended to destroy me in my weakness, we see that God uses our weakness to show his strength so that his glory can be on display. Satan also helps his lying by the way in which he does it. Satan attacks by blinding the minds of unbelievers. In a movie that I like, um, I'm not sure if I can recommend it, I can't remember how, how bad it is, but The Usual Suspects by Kevin Spacey, he says this amazing comment. He says, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he does not exist. He doesn't only blind people to the reality, though, of his own existence. He actually blinds people to the reality of the glories of the gospel, of the beauty of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded... Now, little g, which means not our God, so we have to dig deeper and go, what does it mean? It actually means Satan. So the God, Satan of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light, the gospel of the glory of Christ. So he not only speaks what's false, he hides what is true. He keeps us from seeing the treasure of the gospel. And he may even allow us to see facts. He may allow us to understand theology. You may have the biggest brain in the room and you may know more about the Bible than anyone else here, but unless you treasure and save the gospel of the glory of God, then you've missed the point. It's just head knowledge that puffs up with pride. He tries to blind us to our identity in Christ. He makes us forget that we're loved, that we're forgiven, that we're righteous, that we are secure, and that God's word is beautiful. But Satan also attacks in camouflage. He disguises himself. He disguises himself potentially as an angel of light. I mean, Paul says that there were some people posing as apostles who were not actually apostles. And in 1 Timothy 4.1, he has a warning that people have joined the church and are teaching what he describes as doctrines of demons. People infiltrating, they know just enough, and they are was described by Jesus as wolves in sheep's clothing and they will not spare the flock from Acts 20.30 but they will draw people away to their destruction if possible. So another question for you. I want to ask what types of things are you most likely to be fooled by? We need to think about this. Where am I vulnerable? What am I vulnerable to believing in? Are you being sucked in to non-biblical preaching and teaching? Do you guard what you listen to? Are you filtering everything that you hear through the lens of the Word of God and saying, does this add up? Or are we just blindly turning on YouTube and podcasts and listening to some random name without understanding if they're a helpful preacher or if they're actually a wolf in sheep's clothing? I want to encourage you. They can be helpful. I listen to heaps of podcasts. I'm not saying don't do that. 
I'm saying research the person, find out who they are and filter it through the lens of the word. Don't replace personal Bible study with someone else's digested thoughts about that passage. It's not the same. Dig fresh wells for yourself. Be excited by the word of God. The other thing that Satan does, besides attacking in camouflage, is he does signs and wonders. In Matthew 24, 24, it says that false Christs and prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so if at all possible, to lead away the elect. Signs and wonders are nothing if they're done with the wrong motives. A sign is to point to something. That's why it's called a sign. The miracles of Jesus were to point to the fact that he was the Messiah and that he represented his Father, God, on earth. They were to point people to glorify God. If the signs result in people not glorifying God but glorifying something else or a personality, then they're not the right sign. Don't follow that sign. Treat it as a wrong way, go back sign. It's not the right thing. I mean, we read Jesus' own words in Matthew 7, 22 and 23 where people are saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? To which Jesus will reply, I never knew you. Depart from me, you works of lawlessness. What a challenge. Satan will also tempt people to sin. I mean, that's probably the most obvious one. We would think about that and go, yeah, that makes sense. He'll do that. Satan did that unsuccessfully with Jesus in the wilderness. He did it very successfully with Judas, where he entered Judas and Judas acted on behalf of Satan. He's done it many times with me. If you're honest, he's done it many times with you. It's a constant challenge. In his book, C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, it's a fictional book where he's writing uh, a fiction between um, two demons, if you like, one senior demon and one junior demon, uh, to coach the demon in how to be a better demon. It's a bit of an insight into what goes on. It's obviously fiction. It's not true, but it does bring some good things out. He writes, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal, satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemies, that's God's ground, he, God, made all the pleasure. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce even one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, God, has produced at times or in ways or in degrees in which God has forbidden. So even the sins that we indulge in, in the right context, they're actually a good thing. God made coffee beans. We can drink a coffee. We can praise the Lord. We can drink 20 coffees. It's probably sinful. Right? In the right context, a healthy sexual relationship is a great thing. In the wrong context, looking at porn or sleeping around, it's a terrible thing. It's a cancer in our lives. And so Satan will use the good things that God developed for, for our, our well-being and a blessing, and he will turn them into something that is horrible. But do you see that he doesn't even have the power to create? He can't even create sin. He's a created being. God is the only creator. Satan is a destroyer and he has to twist the good things that God has created. He doesn't even have the power to create. So another personal reflection question. We know ourselves well, better than anyone else does. You talk to yourself more than anyone else. In what ways are we most susceptible to sin? Be honest with yourself. Think about it. Examine your lives. What are we susceptible in? Because when we know, when we've thought about it, then perhaps we can stand. Perhaps we can be ready for the attacks. Satan also plucks the word of God out of people's hearts and chokes the faith. In the parable of the, the sower, we see that the, the seed is, is spread onto the path and the birds come immediately and they take it away and we see that, that that life, which is like the gospel and salvation, is 
snuffed out. It's destroyed by Satan. Satan also fights against evangelism. Paul tells how his missionary plans were frustrated in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18. They desired to go, but they weren't able to go. Satan hindered them. Satan hates evangelism. He hates Christians who have zeal. He hates that. He wants to stop it. And we've got a plan as a church where we want to be about reaching other people for the Lord. All churches should have that plan. So we're saying we want to be generous with our gifts. Last year we gave away about $165,000 to missionaries. Right? We want to be generous with what we have. We're planting churches so that they may reach other people. We're planting churches here. We're planting churches interstate and helping with that. And we're actually supporting things overseas in order for the gospel to go further. And we shouldn't be a surprise to us as a church when we hit opposition. Because if we're being effective for the gospel, expect opposition. If you never get any opposition, that's like a warning sign. Maybe I'm not even, Satan's not even worrying about me because I'm so out of the race that he doesn't even need to bother. Right? So expect opposition when you're walking in line with the Lord. But we can have hope because in Matthew 6, 18, we read that it's God who will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God does the building. God does the building. He will build his church. I want to share with you another military example from World War II. This one was a Japanese soldier, a lieutenant, Hiro Onoda, who was an Imperial Japanese Army Intelligence officer. He was a high-ranking officer. He'd been dropped in an island in the Philippines. He had three other men with him, and he was given the orders, never surrender, never surrender. And he took that literally. He had no radio contact. He was, he was out of the loop. And he became an expert in guerrilla tactics. And over, over years, he conducted these guerrilla missions, and he actually managed to kill 30 people on that island by himself, not including the guys that his, his colleagues had killed. But the challenge is, he didn't surrender even when the war was finished because he didn't get that order. He still had his orders, and so he was still fighting his own battle. They dropped propaganda, like Japanese dropped propaganda on him and said he could read it and say, oh, the war is over, I need to stop. But he, he was like, this must be fake, it's just the Americans. No, nah, we've got to keep fighting. I was told never to surrender. It wasn't until his former commanding officer was flown to the island, old, in retirement, found him up in the hills and formally rescinded his order to never surrender and say, you need to surrender, the war is lost, the war is over. And so after the year, after the war had ended, in 1974, 29 years later, he surrendered. 29 years he was fighting a war that had already been lost. He was fighting his battle, but the war had already been won. And that's exactly what Satan is doing. He's fighting battles, but he's already lost the war. He can't actually affect the outcome, and he knows that. He's trying to take as many people down with him as he can, but we can have confidence. We know that we have the victory that Satan will not win. He cannot win. In Colossians 2.15, it says that God disarmed the principalities and the powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. The war is won, and it is finished. When we encounter opposition from Satan, I want to encourage you to stop and remember that Satan may be a liar, but we can know the truth through the word of God. That Satan blinds others, but we have a God who gives sight to the blind. That Satan comes to destroy, but God is the all-powerful creator. That Satan threatens death, but we have a God who brings life and life abundantly. 
That Satan may be darkness, but God is pure light. That Satan may appear powerful, but he's on a leash. And one day, that leash will be reined in, and Jesus will stop it with the word of his mouth. There won't even be a battle. He'll stop it like that. They are some of Satan's tactics. But I want to say, thankfully, we don't stand in our own power, in our own warfare ability, because to be honest, the battle ability of Nathan's pretty average, less than average. I'll get smashed straight away. We're told to put on the armour of God, not the armour of Nathan. And that's encouraging, because it's not us who fights. We're called to stand. The battle has already... The battle may rage, but the war has been won. And the path to victory in the battle is to hold fast to Christ who has already won the war. Can I get that last slide up, please, as I pray? If you are struggling with some of the things that I've talked about, I want to ask you today to be brave and get help. You might be struggling with anything at all. Not that. Unrelated. But you know that you are in a battle and you feel that you're in a battle. I want to encourage you to be brave. There are people who will pray for you. We've got Dom and Tracy Hops who would love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you. We have pastors here who would love to shower you with love, help you find healing. Would you be bold to stand with me and to pray? If you want to speak to someone, I want to encourage you to make this stage as an altar. Come forward. Come and speak to us. Don't go home today if you're in danger. Seek help. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have won the war. We thank you that even though the battle rages on, we have hope because we know the outcome. Help us to trust in you. Help us to rely on the truth and not be deceived by the lies. We thank you that you are in total control. Even though our circumstances may not change, we know that you can use our weakness for your good and your glory. And we rejoice in that in Jesus' name. Amen.